0: such a time as this, The Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to The Whistleblower Report, and this is Inside Pharma with Headley Reese, who is our expert every week, exposing the malfeasance, the Failure of good regulatory oversight. Failure to investigate manufacturing sites prior to approval. The failure of regulatory agencies to adhere to good manufacturing practices. America and the world listening, this report every week is your look inside the black box that has become big pharma colluding with big government, big medicine, and the global elites to bring experimental and potentially dangerous products that affect your life and your health. And we've seen it with the COVID shots, we've seen it with Remdesivir, and we've seen the lack of adherence to good manufacturing practices, We've seen the deaths. We've seen the disability. This is your expert opening that black box hidden from the public, and we are exposing internationally what's going on. This show every week will have international experts led by our host, Headley Reese, who has spent a career as an insider in big pharma and a career as a consultant helping to be sure that companies adhere with good manufacturing practices, proper distribution procedures, and all the rest that goes into the safety of the medicinal supplies that we all depend on. This show today is talking about the malfeasance With the U.S. FDA as Peter Marks, the director of the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research and the one responsible for the approval of the deadly and dangerous COVID shots, and the one who still is pushing the lie that they're safe and effective, Peter Marks is seeking to be a player on the global stage with gene therapy agents, which they're now changing the name and calling them advanced therapeutics so the public doesn't know what they're talking about. It is the mRNA gene therapy shots that we're talking about. When you start hearing the term advanced therapeutics, that's what they really mean, mRNA gene therapy, altering your God-given DNA And your life and your health. So, Hedley Reese is going to be every week bringing us guest experts from around the world. He is going to be bringing us the truth about what is really going on inside this big black box of big pharma that's colluding with big government and the global elites. And get ready for some serious and significant exposes. So, Headley, I'd like for you, I just welcome you to this platform and the Truth for Health Advisory Council. And the fact that we're this is your show every week. So I'm here to facilitate it, but you're the expert. And I want you to take it away on what you've been seeing about what Peter Marks who's supposed to be taking care of Americans and looking after the safety in the manufacturing and distribution of products for Americans. That's his job. He's paid by the U.S. taxpayers. He works for the FDA. What is he doing at all of these global conferences and spending all this time hobnobbing with the global elites? It's almost as if it looks like he's trying to be Uh, developing his global power rather than his responsibility to the American citizens. So tell us more about that from your perspective, because, of course, you're seeing him at the events in Europe and the UK.
1: Yes, of course, Dr. Lee. And uh, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm really grateful to have this platform. So. Um, listeners should know that there is a new breed of medicines that's been emerging over the last 10 or 15 years. In the US, they're called advanced therapies or advanced therapeutics. In Europe, they are called advanced therapy medicinal products. And the definition really involves gene therapy, cell therapy and tissue engineered products. So we're talking here about making medicines out of living organisms, living things, and that's very much more difficult than making what are known as small molecule uh, medicines. So you know, aspirin—it's made with industrial chemistry. Uh, you can identify it fairly easily with quality control tests, and you can uh, find out if it's good or bad and you know, you can do the, um, the, the the quality assessment. With biologics, because they live in things, it's very much more difficult. And to manufacture them, it's very difficult. And I first got involved with these in 2013 when I worked with a company in Oxford in the UK, Oxford Biomedica. And that's the company that makes the, um, the AstraZeneca drug substance. uh, And that's slightly different. It's still a gene therapy, but instead of being mRNA, it uses a a virus, what they call a a virus vector, to deliver the modified cells into the patient. But they're both gene therapies and they're both, I say experimental, but they're emerging. And no one has really conquered the logistics and the supply chain issues with the major gene therapy on the market, which is known as CAR-T. CAR-T therapy is for blood cancers, rare blood cancers. And the first one approved for market was a, a product by Novartis called Kimria. FDA approved that August 2017. It was $475,000 when it launched, and basically the hospital has to spend a similar amount on top of that to be able to carry out the various procedures that they have to do to extract cells from the patient and then to administer the whole thing. So fundamentally, the product really is very small patient population, and uh it's so expensive that it's not really generating a lot of revenue. The other thing is the side effects are quite horrible. Um, uh, neurological toxicities and cytokine release syndrome. And the, the actual patient information leaflet has a warning on there, uh, warning that most pa- patients will get these will get these side effects so the bottom line is these therapies have been called advanced therapies but they they're not advanced at all in fact they are still very immature and still the the method of development and production is still uh, being be, being worked on so but uh, even though that's the case we're having conferences all over the world with big pharma, with the small companies like BioNTech and Moderna, you've got academia, you've got business people, you've got all these people really going wild about the potential for these advanced therapies. And I think they see it as the next big opportunity to make blockbuster profits in the industry because you think if you've got a vaccine, uh, I I call it a a vaccine tongue-in-cheek, if you've got an injectable that you could sell globally to most of the world's population, then think what well, we know that you know, hundred billion dollars for Pfizer. We know the sort of money they're making, but even even with that, we also know there are huge manufacturing and distribution issues, which I've been writing about for a long, long time. Um, as I say, my personal experience and professional experiences with these, and they have not conquered the challenge of being able to keep these drugs safe and effective. So when I say FDA and Peter Marks was in charge of the... There's two centers at FDA, basically. There's a Center for Drug Evaluation and Research and the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. And the biologics part of it is very much but much more complicated and in fact, CEDA did ASIBA uh, did lose a few high-profile vaccine staff in the early days of, um, of, of COVID. And, and those vacancies are still there. So you, you have to wonder what uh what, what led up to that. So in 2021, there was an advanced therapy conference held <clears throat> virtually. Uh Peter Marks was a speaker there. And uh, I, I'll share with you the link that shows the various agendas and uh, and all the people that were there. But I can guarantee none of them knew anything about the manufacture and distribution of these these um, advanced therapies. But they're all very excited because they all think they're going to get a piece of the pie. Uh, and then London- you know, it
0: sounds to me like you have a teenage boy just going into puberty given with his testosterone surging and you give him a Ferrari and he doesn't know how to drive. Absolutely. That's exactly it. And he doesn't know how dangerous
1: driving is.
0: (laughs) Right. And he does. And he's got a powerful car that can, I mean, let's, let's look at the example of a 13 year old boy doesn't surging testosterone you give him the keys to a high-powered car like a Ferrari when he hasn't had any driving lessons, and the analogy similar here, yep, yep. And, and he gets all excited about this big, shiny new car, and he's going to take it out and spin it around town without regard for the fact that he doesn't know what he's doing, and he doesn't understand the power – and he doesn't understand how it's made, and he doesn't understand the damage that can occur. Is that about right?
1: That's a perfect an, uh, analogy. And, you know, the police would, you would expect the a, a police force would very soon track him down and put him, you know, and put him right. And that's what the FDA should be doing. It's a regulator, and it's responsible for keeping patients safe. That is ultimate responsibility. And it has not done that at all. And the Exactly way right. Been-
0: the last three years of the COVID pandemic, they've totally abdicated their responsibilities for evalu- properly evaluating clinical trials, a pre-approval inspection of manufacturing plants, post-marketing surveillance and reporting of adverse events. They have completely abdicated all of those responsibilities under the charter for the FDA since 1934. It has been staggering. And they are just pushing these things through approval, knowing the toxicity of them because it's in the data. I mean, look at remdesivir and look at the COVID shots. The toxicity and damage was, was in the data before they were released for use.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and when you mentioned pre-approval inspections, it's absolutely unprecedented for a drug to be approved by FDA without pre-inspection approvals of the drug substance. This is the liquid that's got the DNA in it or the mRNA in it and uh, the drug product. So that is the vials where the liquid filled inside. You know, they had five doses in, in a vial you have to go in and have experienced inspectors. And typically a PIA is two inspectors, very experienced for four days, and they go through the plant from start to finish. And uh, uh, remediation work would have to take place uh, before any approval was was given. And we know that none of that happens. But there have been, and again, I share this link with you, there have been at least two um, FDA inspections. One of a company called Renschler in Germany. I think I mentioned this on the last call. And one was Catalan Pharma Pharma Solutions. Catalan is the second largest uh, contract manufacturing and and development organization in the world. And the uh, I think I said again, when FDA inspects a plant, if they're not happy, they'll issue a Form 483, which lists all the observations they've made and all the things that were going wrong. And both for Catalan and for Rentschler, they were horrific inspections. They really were saying, you know, there's there's no control in the plant, so it's no wonder we've got toxic batches. And the 483 are, are on the FDA website, and it's you know, and I I I share them with you, when, and you can see the inspectors are really experienced. You know, you can you can just tell the way they've written the the, the reports. So they should have been stopped immediately. And there's uh, there there's other inspections that Catland has had. So that's what F- FDA should be doing. They have a history of a gold standard. The inspectors even now. still very experienced but they're not being sent in to do their jobs and you know to
0: close the the sites down that need remediation well and after those inspections of those two companies were they closed down on the manufacturing or were they allowed to continue
1: Uh, one of them the catland was on the booster shots uh there was like um i don't know a few months delay but then, you know, there's a lot to and fro in. And then uh, um, they were allowed to carry on. Uh, the article is in a, a journal called Fierce Pharma. Um, it's a journal that covers the industry and the amount of stuff on there, you, you know, if you, I recommend anyone looks up Fierce Pharma. And uh, th- these articles are written. They share the the Form 483s. So, and um, like 15 years ago those those plants would have just been closed down and sometimes these are systemic failures no matter what you do if the people haven't got the right culture the right training education there's no re- remediation that's going to work and they, you just have to say look you aren't allowed to manufacture drugs anymore because the, the you know the, the company really doesn't understand how to do it
0: well um, i remember that we used to have when the FDA was doing its job, we used to have recalls of batches of medications, for example, that were made in India and China, where the manufacturing quality control and the plants, I mean, the plants were filthy. They they were—they um, had all kinds of manufacturing defects, and the FDA would step in and prevent those generics from being brought into the U.S., as they should. Or they, were, they did recalls of various medications. We went through that with several just in the last 10 years. And suddenly, under COVID, they stopped completely. The FDA stopped completely.
1: Yeah. Uh, so um, it's, it's, it's almost, this has happened across the world as well. All regulatory bodies are just waving through um, these drugs virtual inspections you know well uh you know a virtual inspection is useless you know this the stakes are so high with a company that wants to get a drug approved and the regulator inspects it virtually Well, they don't go there they just say you know like the f the mhra was using microsoft hololens hololens 2 so the company would someone put would put a camera on their head and they'd walk around and you know, the MHRA would ask the company or send us some documents and show us, you know, the, this machine or that machine. But that's not the way inspections work. You know, ins- inspectors got to go in and choose where he goes, looks in the little nooks and crannies where they didn't want you to go. And that's how inspectors find out what they need to know, not a virtual inspection. Yeah. And, and we are seeing even more artificial intelligence as, as part of the whole thing. That's, um, that's another issue. You know, IBM, again, working with Moderna on virtual intelligence uh, projects. You know, it's not a virtual world. <laughs> when you make a drug, you don't make it virtually, you make it physically with people, you know, working, w- working uh, to standard operating procedures, with quality systems, making sure that they don't make mistakes. And that just has not been, not been happening.
0: It's really quite alarming, and I think people around the world need to understand, but especially here in the U.S., where our standards have traditionally been higher than other countries, and I, I think people really need to understand that we don't have the safety and regulatory oversight that we have been accustomed to, certainly for my entire medical career, because I've, I've been in medicine now in private practice for 38 years, and I was on medical school faculties prior to that for a few years. And throughout my medical career, <clears throat> the safety oversight was generally something that we could rely on. Now, there were some egregious examples of failures. Biox was one in, in the early 2000s, and there, there were others. But as a rule, the safety oversight, the re- careful review of clinical trial data, and the clinical studies, sending things back to the companies to be redone for further studies, if need be. A lot that I was involved in where I know that that was what was going on in the approval process. And now we're just seeing none of that. It's like the people on the expert panel have been corrupted by being consultants. Let's say Gilead, for example, nine of the 16 people at NIH on the expert panel that recommended remdesivir as the gold standard drug for COVID when they knew people had died. More than half the clinical trial patients under the earlier Ebola trials had died with remdesivir when three other drugs were working against Ebola. So it wasn't the Ebola, it was the remdesivir toxicity. And yet they voted to make it the covered countermeasure, gave it immunity, and then the government paid bonuses to the hospitals to use remdesivir, all the while not disclosing that nine of the 16 people who voted to approve it had consulting contracts lucrative money being paid by Gilead, the manufacturer of, of remdesivir. I don't know if you were aware of that, but because because that was unique to the US, but. But what's happened,
1: Dr. Lee, is they've set up these panels, but in the olden days, I'll call it, the ultimate arbiter of an approval was the FDA, because, you know, whilst they have delegated authority, they are the only body that have. All the information about the drug, how it was made, manufactured, what they call the chemistry manufacturing controls. So that's the entire supply chain, uh, the the safety, the 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 safety data and the clinical data. No one else has that data. So how could CDC or these panels make a decision on with without the data? There's a very clear harmonized process. That's been in place for 20, 30 years across the world, where when you submit an application to market the Drug, you use a common technical document, and you have to give a massive amount of data on the whole supply chain from start to finish, on all the safety tests in animals you did. Every time you make a new product, a new scale, you have to do more animal tests on that, and, of course, the the, the clinical data. But through covid they've only talked about the clinical data and they talk about a rolling review, which they've made up. Basically, there's no, you know, the, a rolling review doesn't provide safe and effective medicines. So, you know, it's it's like you've entered a, you know, a, 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 you're living on a different planet and uh, you suddenly begin to think, well, you know, this isn't a world that I was born into. <laughs>
0: Well, it's like we've entered an Alice in Wonderland world where the regulators are all on hallucinogens and and the rest of us are looking to make sense of all of it
1: yeah and there's no there's no sense to be made of it it's It go back to your analogy of the Ferrari and the thirteen year old boy they they're not thinking about anything other than you know the how you get when you're whizzing round in the high speed basically, and you know how do we get how do we get back to the point where adults are actually in charge of the whole thing?
0: Well, that's exactly right. I had the a image in my mind of of this thirteen year old kid who doesn't know how to drive with the, one of the most powerful cars in the world out on the interstate just going berserk. Well, that's kind of how I see what's happened. With the FDA and the European Medicines Agency and the UK regulatory body, they've all just it's like they're drunk on power and they're drunk on the shiny new toy of these gene therapy and they are all blinded by the potential for blockbuster profits instead of focusing on people's lives and the safety of our medicinal supply. That's the bottom line. We'll be right back after the break. This is Dr. Lee for America with the whistleblower report inside the black box of pharma with our inside pharma expert, Hedley Reese from the UK. Check out our website, www.truthforhealth.org. We are bringing you the truth and hope and solutions to combat the lies and deceptions. And we have lots of resources for you. Please visit our website and join us every day, Monday through Friday, on America Out Loud Talk Radio for the Whistleblower Report and on whistleblowerreports.org and CloudHub for ready access to all of our whistleblower reports and our archives. We'll be right back after the break.
2: Well, the out loud truth was the rallying call that started it all. A wide spectrum of programming from world and political news to societal, your health and cultural stories. Seven amazing years of news stories, informative podcasts and great talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body, and now they found the solution. The Miracle Enzyme Nattokinase kinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made CoFixRx nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CoFixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code OUTLOUD and get 20% off.
0: Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report, Inside Pharma. This is Dr. Lee for America with our Inside Pharma expert, Headley Reese, from the UK. He has spent a career inside big pharma and then as a consultant to pharmaceutical companies in the manufacturing and distribution and adherence to good manufacturing practices. There's no one better to speak about all that's going on that jeopardizes the safety of the public around the world as we watch our regulatory agencies be corrupted by agreements and financial incentives from big pharma and the global elites and the fact that the regulatory agencies are not doing their job to ensure compliance. With good manufacturing practices, proper safe distribution, proper pre-approval, inspection of the manufacturing companies, and proper clinical trial development, it is truly staggering in total abdication of all of their responsibilities under their charters in different countries. Most egregiously speaking for me as a U.S. physician who has depended upon reliable information and safety oversight from the FDA. The fact that the FDA has totally abdicated its responsibilities in all these areas is not only shocking, but it is very dangerous and it is quite alarming. Consumers need to know what's going on. So, Headley, thank you for speaking the truth and for educating our audience. And I know that each week you have, you also have your sub stack where you have more detail and columns. We will have those columns cross referenced and published on our website as well. So people can find things in one place. If they don't know how to use Substack, it's going to be on our website as well. Thank you for your tireless work in all of this. So let's go ahead with the story you're describing about what's going on with the regulatory agencies. And in in particular, Peter Marks and what you've heard him say at some of the international meetings, which most Americans don't even know he attends, much less what he says.
1: Yes, it's, um, as I say, there was a conference in 2021 where he spoke and in London earlier this year, Advanced Therapy Conference again, and there's a a similar conference in 2024. I I don't think he's speaking there, but um, the fundamental principle is that there has to be um, a distance between the regulator and the companies making the drugs. Otherwise, you know, um, there's a conflict of interest, you know, a clear conflict of interest, particularly when the conferences because people sit around the table, they chat and, you know, it's more informal. And a regulator has to work through formal channels, otherwise it can't defend the decisions it makes. So that I, I sort of question whether... A regulator, I, I'm just thinking of times when regulators have been at, at conferences, and normally, I, I used to chair, co-chair a conference in Cincinnati every year, 2011 to 2014, where Cincinnati District co-sponsored the, the FDA Cincinnati District co-sponsored the event along with Xavier University, and the director there at the time was Dr. Marla Phillips. And I got to know how proud, you know, those people were of the job they were doing. Sometimes um, some of the inspectors would turn up, you know, full uniform, like a police uniform with guns. But they were proud of the fact that they were keeping patients safe. And the discussions we had at that conference, it was called the Global Outsourcing Conference, was how much of a, a, an awful impact this outsourcing has had over the way drugs are manufactured and the potential for things to go wrong. So in in, in the 1980s, the industry uh, was what you call vertically integrated. So the big pharma companies owned all the facilities. That made manufactured the drugs and developed them. They employed all the people, and manufacture took place under one roof from start to finish. You know, we used to make in the UK. We used to make Alka-Seltzer for, for Europe, and we'd bring the raw materials in the the uh, in the um, goods receiving bay: citric acid, aspirin, and um, uh, and uh, uh, and, and various other components, but they all came in either from uh, local suppliers or maybe from a, a Bayer subsidiary. So we we knew them. And then we would process the alka salsa. We'd blend them, mix the materials. They would then go into a, a powder press. You press into tablets. Uh, they would go into foil and into cartons. They'd be packed into shipping outers. And we, we'd ship them to pharmacies around the UK. We, we'd ship them direct. And, uh, you know, they, I don't know if you remember with Alka-Seltzer, it used to be in glass bottles many years ago before it changed to foil. And when I first joined there, it was the glass bottles. And there was a small polystyrene, I don't know what you call it in the US, it's like a sort of um, light bit of packing piece and in the top of the bottles to stop the the Alka-Seltzer tablets, which are quite large and breakable, from moving around. And we get uh, customers ringing up saying, oh, one of the tablets wouldn't dissolve and, you know, uh, complaining. And we'd explain, no, no, that's one. It looks a bit like a tablet. But it's actually a, a piece of polystyrene that's in there as, as a packaging piece. And we'd send a, a complimentary bottle of Alka-Salsa and, and just, uh, you know, and, and just make good with the customers. Because in those days, it, it, you know, we, everyone working for the company had skin in the game. You know, you're employed by the company selling the the, the 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 drugs, and if your if the drug was successful, you would be successful. These days, all the manufacture just about is done by contract manufacturers working on a fee for service basis. So, uh, through a supply agreement, so they get paid for delivering the service, and whether the drug is successful or not. They still get paid. Now, I'm not saying these companies purposely, you know, aren't committed, but the, you know, the contract manufacturer is a different legal entity to the the company developing the drug. And they all they have the different boards of directors and and their aim has to be to maximise returns for the shareholders. So it's not the same relationship. So we've got the companies making the drugs not really having the full engagement with the companies who are selling them. And we know today the big pharma companies just patent molecules and do the sales and marketing. The piece in the middle that they used to own and used to um use to develop the drugs, that's in the hands of third third parties now. And, and that's been a big issue. And that's the reason why there've been less and less drugs Get into market over the years. Um, there's a lot of evidence, uh, a from the U.S. Government Accountability Office, and also from uh, researchers who are saying the profitability of drugs and the number of drugs come into market, the productivity in R and D has been dropping and dropping and dropping. So the whole industry is having trouble making the sort of blockbuster returns that their shareholders have been used to. Um, you know, we've got drugs like uh, Humira and uh, uh, some some of the other big blockbuster drugs that have been making $30, $40 billion over their lifetime. That's not happening anymore. We've had what they call the the value of death, which is drugs not coming to market, which led to the patent, uh, patent cliff, where uh, these pattern monopolies are, are not there because the drugs aren't coming through, and that has le- that has led to a real issue with pharma companies being able to make the sort of profits expected. And in my personal opinion, that what's happened with these these injections is this has been, you know, the only way the industry could think of to make big, big profits was to to pretend that these gene therapies actually worked and convince people that these gene therapies worked. Um, Well,
0: Hedley, I have a question related to what you just said. The thought occurs to me, since we know that these gene therapy injections they've literally been working on it for at least 20 to 30 years and they never were able <clears throat> to develop an MRNA vaccine for H AIDS, AIDS or HIV AIDS. And I, do you, could there be any um, ulterior motive to back off development of traditional drugs and focus on the gene therapy products where they could make more blockbuster profits than on a traditional uh, small molecule medicine. Could that have been an organized plan over the last 20 years as, as they had fewer in the pipeline, perhaps by design or perhaps lack of opportunity to develop new ones, but fewer small molecules and focusing on, oh, if we do this, because we could make um, much more money. There were PowerPoints that Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab presented at Davos in 2017. I mean, I've seen them where they they are talking about exactly this. Their focus needs to be on all of these gene therapy agents where the potential for profits are much greater?
1: Yeah, well, uh, the, the, uh, in actual fact, I think it's, a, it's, you know, in the last 15 years, there have been 30 late stage failures in Alzheimer's, you know, and that was the big target. Um, most of the big pharma. You mean well, drugs for
0: Alzheimer's? In. You mean drugs? 30 late stage failures of new medicines
1: for Alzheimer's, yes, correct? Yeah. yeah, of new medicines, the, the, they have two theories on, on, on the cause of Alzheimer's. One is a, a, a chemical called amyloid beta is doing something to the brain fibers or the brain cells, or there's something called tau. They both, they're both uh, developing small molecule drugs to address these these chemicals, but that's just a theory. And the issue we've got is that these companies get a patent based on a theory. And these theories don't work because you can't have a theory about, if I put that into your body, this is going to do this to your body. You've got to do the hard yards work to prove safety and a certain amount of efficacy before you get a patent. And this is why there's so many failures. There's a rush to get into the clinic. The investors don't want to take the time you know, we have technologies now that can predict the performance of a drug. We have things like organ on a chip and other technologies, you know, using tissue, uh, human tissue, rather than testing in animals. There's new technologies coming through, but the is purely focused on getting into a clinic, running clinical trials, submitting that to the FDA and getting the approval. But, you know... 249 times out of 250 there's are official U.S government accountability office figures 249 times out of 250 it fails and if you knew how much money was spent on the animal testing on all the administration then the manufacturing the you know the 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 contra research organizations who are running the clinical trials uh, if you add all that up those Those 30 failures, or those failures, really are costing hundreds of billions every year because the industry has not tried to solve the issue. How do you predict if a drug is going to be successful or not? And what technologies can be used to do that? Well, and not
0: only that, their theory is turning out to not be actually as correct as they thought because... There are many other aspects that are contributing to Alzheimer's disease that are coming out in other research now, including the damage to blood vessels in the brain through impairment of of the nitric oxide pathway, not necessarily the accumulation of the Dow proteins or amyloid as had been the focus earlier in my career. So we actually have new theories about the cause of Alzheimer's that they don't seem to be paying attention to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But this is this focus on what are, what can we say to people that will convince them it's going to work and then they'll invest in us and we get a drug to market. But absolutely, Alzheimer's, you know, it, and you know a lot more than I about, about this, but it's... Um, you know, and it's the same with heart disease, all these indications, new drugs aren't coming to market because they're trying to focus on research that's um, where the main focus of the research is to uh, justify a particular type of drug. Whereas, you, you know, research has really become uh, commercialized to the extent where, you know, you just can't, uh, you can't believe what what you're uh what, what 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 you're being told And then the industry started to focus on rare disease, orphan indications and cancer indications, you know niche cancer and they then started to set up health, economic and outcome research um, uh, organizations to justify the high prices they were they wanted to charge. And you know, and they haven't really gone anywhere either because because they are such small patient populations that if you charge a million dollars for the drug, you're still you know not going to make the, the 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 sort of money that's, that 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 that's inspected. So, and that's why I say every area they've looked at, they haven't been able to. Um, Generate proper evidence that a drug can work, so they've gone for easier and easier regulatory environments. To the point, to the point where they've now they've just um, done the you know the thirteen year old with a Ferrari example.
0: Well, I think all the way around it is a huge wake-up call to citizens around the world that this is going to require citizens speaking out in their legislative representative bodies worldwide, as Member of Parliament Andrew Bridgen has been trying to do in England as one of the few courageous members of Parliament speaking up. And the few courageous ones we have in the U.S., Senator Ron Johnson has been bringing up these issues tirelessly throughout the last three years. I worked closely with him all through 2020. And quite quite frankly, if the citizens who are concerned about the safety of our supply of medicines that all of us are dependent upon in one way or another then we really need to start putting pressure on our elected officials to hold these regulatory agencies accountable. Are there there other suggestions that you might have for consumers to look into some of the source and manufacturing issues for medicines they take? What, What options do you see that people have?
1: i I think the issue is the patent is a sort of like a starting gun when you um when you buy a patent the patents are, a patent are awarded you've got twenty years to um of, of patent protection so if you take if it takes you ten years to develop the drug you've only got ten years remaining patent time a uh, patent time if it takes you fifteen years you've only got Five years left. So the industry is trying to do its development so quickly that it's get you know it's more haste less speed. It's actually uh, launching development candidates that didn't have a chance of, to get a market at the start because they didn't know enough about it. But because they had a patent, they did it. Now we have got to get politicians to understand the. Patent law is archaic. It allows a pharmaceutical company to claim molecules that they own the molecules because they're going to make a drug out of it. And if you said, "Right, I think this drug is going to cure Alzheimer's," I'm going to have a patent for that. And they get the, pay, uh, they get the patent, but when they started to de- develop it, they realize it's not working. You know, it never, and it might be toxic or it might have stability issues, all sorts of things. They don't understand the compound or the molecule that they've patented. So we've got to make pharmaceutical companies spend a lot more time looking at the compound that they've got with doctors, people like yourself, Dr. Lee, who understand the indication. They understand the nuances of Alzheimer's, as you've said there. Uh, It may be that you don't need medicine. Maybe, you know, there's other alternatives. If you do need uh, um, a medicine, then, you know, doctors are the ones who understand what works and what doesn't. We look at ivermectin and hydrochloroquine repurpose syndromes. You know, doctors, if they knew, and I, 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 I've i written on this, if, if they knew how to work with um, companies to do the development and manufacture of a drug that's approved for one indication, but not for another, it's not rocket science to be able to repurpose that drug because you just need to understand the regulations. You need to know the manufacturers who can do it for you and, and whatever, what sort of studies that, that, that you run. And that would be a thousand times cheaper than the $2.6 billion they claim it costs to develop a new drug. You know, $2 billion of that is the cost of failure, actually more than $2 billion. Okay. And I think we should have more uh, doctors understanding what's required to develop a drug. As I say, it's not rocket science. And, you know, the intellect of, of doctors, you know, is uh, is very high. So they know the safety bit. They know the toxicology. They know the clinical piece. What they don't know is the chemistry, manufacturing, and controls, the supply the supply chain piece, because that's what the patient gets in their body. You know, it, it, they don't you're, get something made in the lab. It's what the supply
0: chain made. You're so right. And going back to the Alzheimer's example, let me give you something that I've been concerned about my whole career. Because one of the things that the research was showing back at the beginning of my career, which goes back, as I said, about 40 years, that estradiol, the primary ovarian estrogen before menopause, actually had major effects throughout the limbic system of the brain and regulated memory and sleep and a host of other functions. And they actually have, we actually have PET scans showing that neuronal connections are richer and denser in the presence of estradiol in the brain than when women lose estradiol at menopause. And there are, and it helps to prevent micro blood clots. It enhances nitric oxide release and it improves blood vessel flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. That's the power of the natural hormone that women have before menopause that they lose at menopause. And I've been preaching this based on the research literally for 38 years. Now, do you think any neurologist or any drug company is looking at the role of products that deliver bioidentical 17-beta estradiol as a potential prevention and treatment for Alzheimer's. No, they shut that down over politics in 2002 when Jacques Rousseau demonized estrogen and started the war on estrogen to protect the role of statins, which actually can make Alzheimer's worse. And then they focus on the Dow proteins and amyloid and all these other things that are all talking around the problem, what's actually going on physiologically. The reason I bring up women is because dementia in women, that they they just lump them all together under Alzheimer's, even though there are many causes of dementia, it's predominantly, it's, it's like a four to five times more common in older women than older men. So there's a gender difference that is very female predominant. Well, you'd think that they might want to look at that, but no, literally they have shut that down. There's not enough money to be made in developing estradiol products because they're already FDA approved and many of them are off patent. So now they're all generic. So they won't look at it. A good example from my own expertise and my own career and my knowledge of the research that shows this is something we should be doing. And guess what? All the patients that I've been treating for decades, making sure that as they got older, their estradiol was maintained at physiologically optimal levels. They don't have these memory problems and they haven't gone down the road towards Alzheimer's. Oh, very interesting. There's lots we could talk about uh, on on these subjects. And I'm just grateful that you're with us today. We have come to the end of our time, Hadley Reese, and I am so excited to have you regularly on our platform. Listeners, every Friday, we're going to do the Inside the Black Box of Big Pharma Exposé with Hedley Reese and guests he's bringing from around the world, soon to come, Reiner Fulmick, one of the leading international attorneys, also licensed in California and the U.S., and Member of Parliament, Andrew Bridgen, and a host of other experts from around the world will be joining Headley Reese as his guest with Dr. Lee for America, your physician co host so join us every Friday for Headley Reese and Inside Pharma. And all of the resources that we bring out in the show will be archived on our website, www.truthforhealth.org. And you can follow Headley Reese at his Substack, Inside Pharma, as well. God bless you all for listening. Headley, God bless you for your courage. And your constant efforts to warn the people and speak out we are excited to have you stay tuned everyone there'll be more blockbuster information each week on inside farmer right here from truth for health foundation whistleblower report